everybody, this is Chris, the Public Safety Guru. Welcome back and thanks for listening. Today will be Lecture 3 and we'll be covering Medical, Legal, and Ethics. In this module, students will become familiar with the legal and ethical side to emergency medicine. We will discuss issues associated with advanced directives, consent, confidentiality, and end-of-life issues. If there is any area an EMT will get in trouble for, it is this area. As with previous lectures, we're going to be identifying the knowledge domains, aka the information you should know by the end of this lecture and podcast for testing purposes. All right, let's hit it. Knowledge domain number one, consent. What is it and how does it apply to emergency medicine? Two, understanding the different types of consent, actual, express, implied, and involuntary. How minors and consent work. And then when you can forcibly restrain a patient, the EMT's roles and responsibilities when a patient refuses treatment and transport, the big dreaded word, HIPAA, do not resuscitate and how it affects EMS, signs of actual death, including physical, presumptive, and definitive, what we do with patients who are organ donors, the standards of care, scope of practice, your duty to act, and when an EMT is guilty of negligence, abandonment, assault, battery, and kidnapping. And then the last portion of this podcast, we'll discuss the legal reporting requirements of an EMT, basically when we can break HIPAA, ethics and morality, and the role of the EMT in court. Sounds like a lot, but we'll be breaking it down so you can wrap your head around this information. As far as the skills that you'll need to know for this lecture, there should be no skill objectives. But once again, this will differ from program to program. All right, so let's jump into this. Remember, the EMT job is to do no harm. Most EMTs can avoid legal consequences if they act in good faith and use the appropriate standard of care. All emergency healthcare providers must stay within their scope of practice to avoid legal liability. For an example, an EMT cannot start an IV even if directed by a paramedic. The reason why an EMT can get in trouble for this is they are operating out of their scope of practice. And this is where a lot of EMTs, advanced EMTs, and even paramedics get into trouble. So just remember, do what you have been trained to do. And you should know your local protocols as well as state protocols. Okay, we're gonna start off with consent. Consent is simply giving permission. Is the patient alert and able to make an informed decision about their medical care? This is the simple foundation of consent. In the medical setting, a patient must give consent to be medically treated and or transported. Now, there are different types of consent and the first one we're gonna talk about is informed consent. It can also be called actual consent. So dependent on the text that you're using, it'll either be informed or actual consent. Now this consent is the consent of a conscious alert adult. We'll discuss teenagers and pregnancy later, but this is your adult patient. Now factors to consider are one, is the patient age of consent? Number two, are there any mental limitations such as learning disabilities, brain disease, etc.? 
Number three, is the patient impaired by alcohol or drugs? Number four, is the patient's medical condition an impairment? Number five, does the patient present with any hearing or vision problems or disabilities? And last, number six, does the patient understand English or do they need an interpreter? The best way to remember actual consent is first, is your patient of legal age? Have you informed them of who you are and the fact that you would like to treat them? And did they give you verbal consent to continue treatment? Remember though, even though a patient gives you consent, they can withdraw that consent at any time, even if it means it's detrimental to their health and well-being. Express consent. Express consent is everything we just talked about. However, in this scenario, the patient does not verbalize their actual consent, but makes a gesture indicating they're giving you permission. For example, let's say you ask the patient if you can take their blood pressure and they respond by giving you their arm instead of saying, yes, you can. This would be express consent as they are ex expressing their consent through bodily movements. This is the best way to think of the differences between express and actual consent. In my experience, one of the other areas that EMTs have trouble, especially in testing, is the differences between actual consent and implied consent. So let's talk about implied consent. This form of consent applies to patients who are unable to provide actual or express consent. This consent normally applies to those patients who are unconscious or in a situation arises when the patient cannot provide any consent. See, in EMS, it is assumed with this consent that a patient would give you consent to treat them if they were conscious and able to do so. It is implied the patient would give their consent so their condition does not worsen. This consent is also known as the emergency doctrine. I'll give you a scenario to remember this. As a first responder, you come across somebody who is unconscious you evaluate them and find they're in cardiac arrest and there's no family around. It is implied that the person in cardiac arrest would want you to save them. And that's what this consent is. Involuntary consent is the next consent we'll discuss. Now, involuntary consent is a form of consent which applies to the following groups. Number one, the mentally ill. Two, developmentally delayed, and number three, those patients that are in a behavioral crisis. In this scenario, the patient should have a caretaker or guardian who can give you consent. Adult patients are normally under some type of court protection conservatorship, and as such, law enforcement should be called to provide consent if no legal guardian is available. So to sum this up, remember, there are three types of consent that deal with adults. We have actual consent, express consent and implied consent. You need to know and understand those. And then for those special patients, we have involuntary consent and you need to memorize those special groups. Now let's move on to the last type of consent and this is the consent that deals with minors. The long and short of this topic is that minors cannot give consent. However, there are situations dependent on the state that you're in that will allow a minor to give consent for their medical treatment.
Once again, this information is dependent on the state you're in. Emancipated minors. Some minors are considered adults if number one, they're in the military, two, married, or they have been ordered by the court or they petitioned to court to be emancipated from their parents. Believe it or not, if a minor is pregnant, they can give consent to have medical treatment done on behalf of their pregnancy. However, if they had a broken arm as well, they technically would not be able to provide consent for you to treat their broken arm, but you could provide treatment for the pregnancy. I know it doesn't make sense, but that's the way the laws work when it comes to minors. Now also remember, in the school setting, school officials can give consent in place of parents since they are charged with the protection of children during school hours. Now, in an emergency, you should always treat a minor and provide care under implied consent. Regardless of the type of consent, you need to document who and how you got the consent to treat. This is what you need to know about consent, and if need be, I would re-listen to this lecture prior to taking your quiz, test, or national registry. All right, we're gonna move on to restraining patients. In certain situations, an EMT may have to forcibly restrain a patient. If you have to restrain a patient, I would advise that you ensure that law enforcement at a minimum is en route to your incident. And once that patient has been safely restrained, make sure you document when they were restrained and how they were restrained. And remember the number one rule, we never restrain patients face down. I know we've already talked about consent, but I also need to remind you that patients can actually refuse treatment and transport regardless if it means them dying from their decision. Patients who are alert and oriented may refuse medical treatment even if the treatment is needed to stay alive. A patient can withdraw consent anytime during a call. If a patient refuses treatment or transport, ensure you document and if needed, contact medical control and then document any witnesses if possible and have the witnesses sign your documentation. Remember, we're in the medical care business. You should first ensure the patient is conscious and alert. Educate the patient on the possible consequences of their decision and let the patient know that they can call you back if need be. Another area that EMT students have difficulty with is confidentiality, HIPAA, and what information can be released to law enforcement. So let's discuss confidentiality first. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996 made changes to patients' privacy. It outlined that patients' medical history is confidential as well as your assessment findings and the treatment you provided. An EMT must be familiar with what information they can release. For example, when an EMT is transferring care of their patient to a nurse, they can provide their assessment, findings, and treatment. Yet, if a police officer asks the information for that same information, this information is protected and may be restricted under certain conditions. Patients' information and records can only be released if a patient signs a waiver, there is a subpoena, aka warrant, or for billing purposes. 
Well, an EMT should know what HIPAA is all about. There are four components to HIPAA at the EMT level. First, it is all about patient privacy. Second, it's about the information that can be released. And three, the responsibilities of healthcare providers in regards to protecting patient information. And last, the penalties that are associated with violating HIPAA. Patient health information is considered any medical information or other information that can be used to identify a patient. Remember that. This is what the definition of patient health information is. We are going to now transfer over to advanced directives, or otherwise known as living wills. An advanced directive is a legal document which provides guidance to healthcare professionals for patients who are dying from a terminal illness or who have elected to not be resuscitated due to their medical history and or age. Now let's talk about the most common advanced directive you're going to see when you're in the field. This is known as a DNR, do not resuscitate. A DNR will normally state a patient does not want CPR if they are in cardiac arrest. Now, a DNR does not mean we do not provide medical care. When someone is dying, sometimes they will require some supplemental oxygen and or suction to allow them to die humanely. This is where the EMT and paramedic will still provide some medical care, but when the patient finally goes into cardiac arrest, no heroic measures will be conducted. Now, when you're evaluating the legitimacy of a DNR, there are a few things you want to take a look at. First, does the DNR describe the patient's medical condition or problem? Is there a legal guardian signature or did the patient sign it themselves? There should be physician signatures and if there is an expiration date, the expiration date should not go past the last 12 consecutive calendar months. Now you do need to know your local protocols as DNRs differ from state to state. Another advanced directive you may come across is called a Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, PULST, or a Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, MULST. Now in these, there are four critical components. First, these advanced directives explicitly describe medical orders and directions for the patient. They must be signed by the authorized medical provider and then medical direction should be sought when you find these orders and they're normally for terminally ill patients. We are now going to talk about the signs of obvious death. First, we have what we call presumptive signs of death and that's when the patient is unresponsive to painful stimuli. There's no carotid pulse or heartbeat. There's absence of chest rise and fall. The patient has no type of muscle reflexes. The pupils are fixed, dilated, and non-reactive. There's no systolic blood pressure. The patient is cyanotic, and you're already noticing a decreased body temperature. Now we also have definitive signs of death, and these are what we call the obvious signs of death. So you're gonna have possibly decapitation, incineration, mass insanguation. You may find that the patient has what they call dependent lividity. That's that purple bruising on the dependent parts of their body. The patient may also have rigor mortis, stiffening of the body, and their patient may also have 
putrefaction, which means you're already starting to smell the signs of decay. Not all patients who die will be medical examiner cases. However, there are some that will be. Those will be suicides, murder, deaths from an accident, suspicious deaths, deaths involving infant and children. Now, the one thing you need to know is your local and state protocols when, you and when it comes to these type of cases and when you have to make mandatory notifications. All right, now let's start talking about the legal side of being an EMT and when an EMT can get in trouble when they do certain things or when they don't do certain things. No matter where you work at in the United States, you will have a scope of practice. While a scope of practice differs from state to state, a scope of practice is the bread and butter of an EMT. A scope of practice dictates what treatment an EMT can provide. And this is defined by both state and local protocols. Now, in regards to the type of orders an EMT can come across, there are two types. There are online orders and offline orders. Online orders are when an EMT makes a telephone or radio communication to a doctor to receive guidance on certain treatment that a patient should uh, receive. And then what we have is offline, which is what the majority of EMTs work under. Offline are standing orders and protocols. Quite simply, this means that when you see a patient exhibit certain signs and symptoms, you as an EMT are allowed to treat those certain signs and symptoms because you have standing orders and protocols which have been codified through policy, procedure, local ordinances, and state law. While you have a scope of practice, you as an EMT also have a standard of care. And a standard of care is simply defined as the way an EMT must act. There's a certain legal litmus test that's used and that test is this. How would a person with similar training act under similar conditions and circumstances? This is that test that you will be held to when you provide your scope of practice utilizing standard of care. Now, standards of care do differ and they're established through, I would say, a set of different organizations and we're going to identify those right now. According to most textbooks, standards of care are established by first local customs. Under local customs, we will say, how a reasonable prudent person with similar training and experience would act under similar circumstances with similar equipment and in the same or similar place. So that's what you have to remember under local customs. The next one we have is imposed by law. Standards of care may be imposed by statutes, ordinances, administrative regulations, and or case law. Now we have professional or institutional standards. These are standards that are published by medical groups such as the American Heart Association who dictates how we do CPR in the United States. And then we have textbooks. EMT textbooks should follow standards set forth by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, otherwise known as the NHTSA. And last, we have state, which are Medical Practices Act. In some states, an EMT will be exempt from licensure requirements because of the Medical Practices Act. But at the state level, states will credential schools and EMTs must be licensed or certified. Also under states, you need to understand or know is that some states will 
impose other standards that they feel their EMS personnel should have. Once again, it differs from state to state. All right, now let's talk about your duty to act and what that actually means for you. Duty to act is quite simply, is it your duty to provide patient care? And quite often the test for this is, are you being compensated to provide patient care? Now, this may sound kind of funny for you right now, but when we talk about negligence and abandonment, duty to act will play a role. So let's jump right into it. Negligence. Negligence is the failure to provide care. However, for you to be guilty of negligence, four conditions must be met. First, duty. Does the EMT have an obligation to provide care? While this may sound dumb, remember there are parts of the United States where EMTs are volunteered and or paid or a combination of the two. So when we are trying to determine if an EMT is negligent, we must ask ourselves, was the EMT on duty? And if they were, then they could be negligent. But this also protects the off-duty EMT because when you're off-duty, there is no duty to act. All right, so let's get to the second component, breach of duty. The EMT does not act or provide the standard of care. And we've already talked about standard of care. Next, we have damages. The patient is physically or psychologically harmed. Last, we have causation. There must be a cause and effect between the breach and the damages. Quite simply, did the EMT's negligence lead to the patient's physical or psychological harm? Besides negligence, there is another thing an EMT can be guilty of, and that is abandonment. Abandonment is the termination of care by the EMT without the patient's consent and or the EMT failing to ensure the patient's care continues from someone of equal or greater training. Now, what you need to remember is that once you start care, you cannot stop. The only time that you can stop care is when you're relieved of someone of equal or greater training. Now, believe it or not, abandonment can also occur in the emergency room. And this happens when the EMT fails to do a patient transfer properly. Quite simply, it's when you put the patient on the hospital bed and you fail to give the report to the treating nurse that will be taking over the care of that patient. And this does happen and you definitely don't want it to happen to you. So what else can you be guilty of as an EMT? Well, believe it or not, you can be guilty of assault, battery, and kidnapping. Yes, that does exist as well for EMTs. So let's define assault. Assault is the fear and intimidation, fear and intimidation to put one in fear of bodily harm. What does that look like? Well, this could be simply threatening to restrain a patient when he or she does not want to be transported, and that would be assault. Now we have battery. Battery is the unlawful touching of another, and this could be quite simply providing care without consent. And then last, we have kidnapping, which is the seizing, confining, abducting, or carrying away through force. And this could by could quite be transporting a patient without consent. On the legal side of stuff, we now have defamation. And defamation is a communication of false information which damages a person's reputation. We have two types of defamation, and those are libel and slander. Libel is 
written defamation and slander is oral defamation. Now, you may also hear this thing called the Good Samaritan Law and how it protects you. Well, you need to understand how the Good Samaritan Law works. And the Good Samaritan Law is basically state law which protects a person from being held liable when providing care to another. But there are four components to it. Number one, did the rescuer act in good faith? Was the care rendered without compensation? And that's a key right there. The third is, did the rescuer not exceed their scope of practice? And last, did not act grossly negligent? Those are the four components of the Good Samaritan Law. Now, if we go back to number two, rendered care without compensation. Well, if you're working as an EMT and being paid or you're volunteering your services, then the Good Samaritan Law would not apply to you as you are being compensated. Now, the best way to protect yourself as an EMT is number one, know your craft, but also two, documentation. Ensure your reporting is complete and accurate as it is a written account of what treatment was given to the patient. Remember, if it is not written down, it did not happen. Your documentation could be used for legal proceedings to either protect you or be used against you. All right, we're going to be going back to mandatory reporting requirements and what you're allowed to report despite HIPAA regulations. Once again, refer to your local and state protocols. However, these incidents are usually the type of incidents that must be reported. They include child or elder abuse, childbirths, injuries related to a crime, suicides, dog bites, assaults, domestic violence, overdoses, sexual assaults and rapes, communicable and infectious disease exposures, deceased persons, and crime scenes. All right, let's round off this podcast with ethical responsibilities. All right, ethics is the philosophy of right and wrong. Quite simply, it is doing what is right when no one is looking. When it comes to ethics and the healthcare provider, the EMT has certain ethical responsibilities to their patients, co-workers, and the public. You may hear a term called bioethics. Well, bioethics are issues that deal with the practice of healthcare. Remember, most of your decision-making, you can usually rely on rules, laws, and policies. All right, as we wrap up this chapter, we must address the EMT and court. An EMT can end up in court either as a witness or a defendant. Court cases are either criminal or civil. If called to a court via a subpoena, you must notify your employer ASAP and hopefully they will secure legal counsel for you. If not, you should secure legal counsel for yourself. During the preparation phase of a case, which is known as the discovery phase, this phase is where sharing of information takes place. Both sides have to share the information that they have. Usually at this phase is where depositions are done, witnesses are interviewed, and usually in the discovery phase is where most cases are settled. Regardless if you're a witness or a defendant, tell the truth, refer to your documentation. Dependent on the case, your attorney may utilize certain legal defenses such as statutes of limitation, government immunity, and contributory negligence. 
Under statutes of limitations, certain cases have a time period in which they must be filed. In government immunity, municipal agencies have certain immunities which mean you cannot be sued as a health care worker. Or if certain damages are sought, those damages are limited. And last, contributory negligence is when the plaintiff is responsible for their injuries based upon their actions. An example would be a patient who was drunk driving and caused their injuries and their drunk driving is what placed them in the situation that they were in. All right, last, let's talk about types of damages. There is compensatory and punitive. Compensatory damages compensates the plaintiff for their injuries and or damages, whereas punitive is intended to punish the offender so they do not do what they did before. Don't forget that there is exclusive content available to members. You can sign up through Spotify, Anchor FM, or heading on over to thepublicsafetyguru.com. There you will find study guides, quizzes, and resources with a library growing weekly. We also will be offering private tutoring. Thanks again for listening and happy EMTing.